0: We're going to read the Bible together. If you'd like to grab one of the uh, the red Bibles, open it up to page one thousand and three. We're reading from Mark two. It's page one thousand and three. Mark chapter two, beginning at verse eighteen. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisee said to them, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. This is the
1: word of the Lord. Well, we're going to spend some time thinking about that passage. Uh, Let me pray for us before we do that. Kind, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit you speak to our hearts and minds this morning, showing us the Lord Jesus Christ in greater clarity and depth and truth and uh so transforming us to be more like him we pray this in jesus name amen well i went back for a wedding uh about three weeks ago to my old church st james just one of the one of the families that was connected to the church uh had asked me to do a wedding many months before i knew i was coming to st stephen's and i went back and um i did the wedding and and uh went to the reception after and one of the family members of the reception, of the fam- one of the family members of the bride was at the reception, and he and I were at the bar at the same time. And he said, uh, he clearly had not been to church very often, if ever. And he said to me afterwards, oh, you know, that was a really great sermon. Um, uh, and he, as is as kind of in our culture now, he dropped a few expletives, because expletives are like exclamation points in our culture. <laughs> Uh, so he used a few expletives to describe the sermon. And then he had this like, moment of horror on his face. I wasn't, even wearing, I wasn't wearing a collar or anything, I was just wearing a suit. But at this moment he said, oh, Father, I'm really sorry. <laughs> this always happens to me. Like when people hear that I'm a, in ministry and then I'm at dinner and someone said they look across at me with real horror as after they've dropped a swear word as if I would be mortified by it and I don't live in the world that they live in. Anyway, I said, of course, that's fine. But I reflected on it and I thought, those interactions tell us something, that within us, we have a sense of reverence for God, a sense of reverence for God. Even if you're not, you wouldn't uh, say that you're religious, you'd say, oh, I I feel a sense of reverence and, and myself as a minister acts as a bit of a symbol of God in that moment and therefore it's inappropriate to swear around me. Uh, we have a sense of reverence about God in our culture. Uh, broadly speaking, of course, there's people who are genuinely irreverent, but I think they're actually a, a minority. And reverence actually is an appropriate response. We see it in the scriptures. In this morning's passage, we get a reference to fasting, which is a, um, a, a little act of reverence in the Old Testament. It's often tied to particular Uh, festivals Uh, the festival of the day of atonement for example was preceded with a period of fasting jesus fasted we know that he went into the wilderness and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights so fasting was common in israelite culture and was a moment often of reverence and reverence actually is a hallmark of old testament religion particularly leviticus starts off like kind of capturing the old testament religion with the line be holy because i'm holy and then there's all these, all these laws and these stipulations and regulations f- to help Israel live out that fundamental idea, be holy because I'm holy. In fact, the temple, which is the, 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 the central point of Israel's culture, uh, had all of these laws and rules about it which helped you to uh, express your reverence. Uh, for example, just something as simple as the lights. We have electric lights, you know, which are beautiful. But in the temple, the, light, the lighting was from lamps and the lighting itself was very specific. When they constructed it, it had to be built a certain way. And when they put fuel in it, it was a particular type of oil that was pressed and was cleared. So it was perfectly clear. And it was in lamps that were pure gold. Or for example, the sacrifices which they gave were not just animal sacrifices, even animal sacrifice had specific rules, but even things like bread was offered at various times in the year and week as a sacrifice. And the bread was cooked out of very specific types of, um, of ingredients. It was measured out very specifically and then it was placed on a perfectly gold table. And all of these were little signposts in Israel's history and common kind of culture to identify the reverence with which they drew to the Lord. In fact, even in the temple itself, there were various levels of entry. Most of us, who are not from Jewish background, would not get very far in the temple. You couldn't get very close in. Um, If you're a woman in Israelite culture, you couldn't get that far in either. Thankfully, that doesn't apply anymore. uh, but even you know the priests were the ones who probably get the closest, and the high priest was the one who could get the very closest, but only for a day, right into the holy of holies. There are all these barriers, and the barriers were not not primarily about no, but about how holy was God. Be holy because I am holy. About the reverence for the Lord. And so, my friend at the bar, uh, though he missed obviously missed something quite significant, was also picking up something that culture which addresses Lord god with reverence is picking up something that's true about the old testament religion the lord is to be revered now what's interesting though is we get this reference to fasting but the rest of the paragraph the rest of the story is not really tips on how to fast is it in fact actually the point of this morning's passage is to warn us i guess in a little in 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 some way about the real trapping the real traps around reverence the real traps around reverence so jesus in matthew 6 talks about fasting you know here's the sermon on the mount and this is what he says when you fast do not look somber as the hypocrites do for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting truly i tell you they have received their reward in full do not look somber like the hypocrites do. It's quite a cutting phrase, a warning. And I reckon Jesus, when he's preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, is thinking about little moments like this, where religion has fallen over uh, sorry, reverence has fallen over into religion. Reverence has fallen over into religion. And what we actually see here in the passage is the way two events, the Sabbath. And uh, and then fasting itself, both of these things, um, ha- which are not necessarily bad things, have become corrupted by the Pharisees. And so, in these stories, the things he's warning about in Matthew six become reality here in practice. The group who comes to them, what you start to see is actually reverence being used to 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 justify themselves. Yeah. The the um the group who asked Jesus the question, not necessarily Pharisees, interesting probably just the crowd, asked Jesus about the practice of fasting. You say fasting had become more than just fasting before, before particular festivals. Now they fasted every twice a week in Jewish culture. And in a sense, that was their way of proving that they were, they were good enough, that they were worthy, that they should be part of God's people. It was a mark of being worthy, of proving that. And then in the Sabbath, the Sabbath had been that all these rules had been added by the Pharisees, kind of hedging out a sense of safety and security just in case they would treat the Sabbath the wrong way. They would do the wrong kind of thing. And so actually the laws had started to protect them, I guess, from breaching that, that space of safety. And here were things which were meant to be reverent practices had become religious practice. What I mean by religious, it means they had become things that had been about saving yourself, you know, about making yourself worthy, of protecting yourself. They become human activities fundamentally. And Jesus is he's, he's intercepting these practices and Mark is using these stories to reveal something to us, a warning, so to speak, about reverence. He says, be careful when reverence becomes religion. Be careful when reverence becomes religion. That's that's one of the clear warnings of these two stories packed together right here and now. Two reverent practices which have become religious practices. Be careful... When human activity has become central. And there's actually a really interesting insight about religion and legalism and, and human, human justification here in this story. Do you notice that the hallmark, actually, of people who have moved from reverence into religion is an obsession with details? Do you see this? Both stories, there are details involved. And it's the breaking of those detailed laws that the people are most worried about. Why are you not fasting on these particular days? Uh, why are you picking the grains of corn on this on your sabbath day you know these very detailed laws about what you could and couldn't do and jesus response is it's not about the details it's about the principle see and religious people people who make the mistakes who move from reverence into religion are people who have left behind the fundamental principles that god is teaching here and embraced particular details and held on to them with real kind of fervour. Now, sometimes it's easy to kind of have a go at the Pharisees and say, well, don't be a Pharisee. you know, To point the Pharisees out as an example of what Jesus is warning against. But God's word is, is eternal and it's relevant to us here and now. And I think that the question marks and the warnings that we hear in this passage are relevant to us in our culture. You see, fundamentally, in our time and place, most people operate under a basic assumption that it is their job to save themselves. Most people in our culture work this way. It's what drives us to work as hard as we do. It's what drives us to obsess over our children. It's what drives us into anxiety and depression. It's because we operate under a baseline approach that it's our job to save ourselves and when we're hearing the story of you know religion and the warning against religion you know what it's easy to do it's easy to say oh yes the guys who meet in there at eight o'clock warning that's traditional religion right there stone building liturgy tradition they better be careful and it's true, I guess, you know, any you do something in a repeated way and you hold to the details steadfastly, you have to keep asking yourself, why am I doing this? <laughs> have I moved from reverence into religion? But what's interesting is that the warning, I think, for us, is not just against people who embrace traditional religion. One of my favourite shows is uh, Friday Night Lights, which is this kind of, like, sitcom that runs for five seasons, Texas, um, and I love it, and I love it, because it's very clever actually, it places American football at the centre of culture and actually replaces religion. One of the characters is this very wholesome um, cheerleader and she, she pretty much does everything right. She's kind, she's generous, she, she, she doesn't seem to fall into lots of the bad habits, she's not a heavy drinker, she hasn't embraced that part of the culture, but then she has this moment of like, significant personal failure. And this is what she says, she says, after the, after the moment comes and passes, she says, throws this line away, hopefully I won't go straight to hell. Hopefully I won't go straight to hell. She doesn't strike you as someone who's traditionally religious, but she's battling the same questions, the same questions. And for her, she, she might be a relativist, for all you know. She might be like any of our friends who we uh, take our kids to school with, or who work next to, who would say, well, I'm not traditional. I'm not a religious type. I'm a relativist, right? I'm modern, I'm secular, but you know what? All of us, in some way, shape or form, import these little rules into our life. You might just be someone, for example, who uh, has, you, you might be someone who has just particular rules that you abide by, you say, I'm not a racist. I'm a generous person. I'm tolerant. And when you start to think about it, you think, Well, the way that I kind of identify that my life is going on track is by those particular rules. There's no religion involved. But here's the thing. You're doing exactly the same thing that the Pharisees are doing. You've just got a different set of rules. You didn't find them in the Bible. Well, not directly. Uh, You might have created them, so to speak, out of your own... But you've got a set of rules, and those rules are what are guiding you. And actually, you are holding to those rules... The things that make you most confident about yourself is whether you are being true to yourself, so to speak. But true to yourself is a rule. It's a form of legalism. It's a form of self-justification. And what we actually start to see in the story here is not just that don't be religious, but actually being religious is decidedly unattractive. That's the point of what Jesus is trying to say. He talks about the old and the new, and he's trying, and the passage and the, and the scriptures are trying to show us why when we hold on to our religious attitudes, whether they're uh, traditional religious attitudes or what I'd call implied secular religious attitudes, we are grabbing hold of an old, dead, lifeless way of, of living and worshipping. First of all, Ultimately, religion, whichever form you choose, separates you from God. Jesus is there. He's right there in their midst, right? But they don't recognize who he is. And that's a bit of an insight, actually, to what religion does. In Romans chapter 1, God, Jesus, uh, Paul uh, describes sin as just the fundamental interchange of the creature treating themselves as the creator, a swip. What he's saying, really, is that what we need to do is have Jesus, God, in the center right, of our lives, But sin is the moment we move him out of the centre and put ourselves there. It's not we move him out completely and he doesn't exist anymore. It's just who is at the centre? Who is the most important? Me? That is sin. And that is really what religion is. It's ultimately saying, of course, that I am the one who's the key for my salvation, my practice, my energies, my rules, my justification. And it does separate you from god but you know it also makes you really anxious in galatians 4 paul says you know you return back to the law you become enslaved you become enslaved i um, remember having a conversation with a young guy who'd come from a very religious background a lot of tradition in his family's past come to faith wonderfully uh, one night we were sitting down, he was talking about a passage in Mark 3 that's coming up later in our series where Jesus talks about sinning against the Holy Spirit, you know, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's a weird little section of Mark. And um, it's troubled him. And I mean it troubles people, they don't know what it means, they're trying to work it out. But it troubled him to the core, actually. It really shook his faith. And as we talked about it, what he came to realise is actually that he had made this, this one verse the rule, the detail, that he had to comply with. And he'd done that because he had grown up for so much of his life thinking with a religious mindset. And he was a moment to put himself back at the centre. If he could comply with this verse, if he could work out what it meant, and if he could do it, he'd be okay. But the problem is he couldn't work it out. And it made him deeply anxious. You see, when you're religious, you're someone who's deeply anxious you are i mean you might cover it up with all sorts of other things but deep down you're someone who's constantly wondering have i done enough have i stepped outside of the circle the sphere of safety you're someone who's constantly asking yourself am i good enough anxiety is the deep experience of the religious it really is actually and ultimately you know what The life of the religious, and you can see the anxiety, can't you? I mean, you listen to what the crowd is saying to Jesus when they ask him the question. You sense their sense of deep anxiety. They're actually, they're genuinely worried. They're not like the Pharisees trying to find a a problem with Jesus, which they can attack. They're actually just anxious about why it is that Jesus' disciples can fast, but they don't have to fast, but they have to fast. And the cumulative story, actually, that you get out of this is that the old way is decidedly ugly and the new way is decidedly beautiful. It really is, isn't it? The new way is feasting with Jesus. The new way is carefree, walking through the fields and plucking grain. The old way is worry and fear, concern, restriction, old and new. You know, it's a bit like a kid who has learnt, who's learning to play the piano. They can read music. They know what each note is on the sheet. But what they do is they look at the thing and then they look down at the keys and they press the key and they look back up and they press the next key. And you'd say, well, they can read music, but they can't play it, can they? Because it's more than just knowing what each note is. It's putting it together in the great picture. And if you're a religious person, you're the person who's looking up and down, playing each note, Jesus is presenting a totally different story. A totally different... And that is his point here. He's using this moment, and Mark is introducing it now, to say to us, there are really two roads here. One is the old road, and one is the new road. And they are starkly different. They are starkly different. And here's the, here's the best place that you find the difference. It's in verse 25 and 26. A little story about David from the Old Testament. But I think it's such a great story. It's referring to an event in 1 Samuel 21, and you can go back and read it during the week and just reflect. There's a lot more detail in 1 Samuel than you find here in Jesus' teaching. A lot more detail, actually. But Jesus just summarises the story within like two sentences. But I think he's doing it on purpose because he wants us just to take a couple of very clear things away from that story. First of all, do you notice that when, in the story, David is needy and hungry. He's in need and he's hungry. And so what does he do? Goes to the local store and buys his meal, shoots a deer and roasts it over open coals. He goes straight to the Lord's house, in need and hungry, and he goes to the Lord's house. Well, that's the way Jesus tells the story. And his point is, the way Jesus wants you to approach God is with dependence. Dependence. He wants you to see that when you are in need, you go to him. When you're in need, you go to him like David did. You know you have a need. You know your soul is crying out. You know it's missing something, and so you go to the Lord's house. That's not particularly striking, but the way David does it is, do you notice what he does? He, goes, he just marches straight in, takes the bread, eats it, and offers it to his companions and this is why i say that the comparison actually between one samuel on one line and jesus story is really interesting because in one samuel actually there's lots of details in one samuel for example david goes there he talks to the high priest the um high priest has to be convinced that david is holy enough so david has to uh, give him certain assurances they've done certain things or not done certain things and then He takes the bread, which has already actually been removed from the altar and replaced with fresh bread, and gives the old bread to David. But Jesus skips all that. The reason is he wants us to see the confidence, almost the brashness of David, who is willing to walk into the temple, this place which is generally a place you're excluded from in the Old Testament, walk straight in, take what he needs, and eat it, and then give it to his companions. That is just, that is so different. To what his hearers and what the pharisees and what religious people expect and he says i want you to express confident dependence confident dependence i want you to feel confident in fact hebrews ten nine, we have confidence to enter the most high place confidence confident dependence and you know what this is why christianity is just different to every other every other religion every other philosophy See, if you live in kind of any other religious space, right, the fundamental thinking is that you save yourself, right? If it's a religion that believes in a God or a power, then you believe in dependence. You might believe in dependence. If you're a traditional religious type, you might believe in dependence. You're happy with that. But the problem, as we talked about, is that you're dependent but always anxious, always uncertain. Have I done enough? Will he or she, that divine being, give me what i really want you're always anxious if you're a humanist if you kind of believe in kind of humanist secular visions and philosophies then you might actually be confident you might be confident to ask for what you want or take what you want but you will also have a sense of pridefulness about you and of course pride comes before the fall doesn't it you see those are two ways of doing life the gospel is totally different the gospel is, you can come with confident dependence. That's, the, that's actually the hallmark of God's people, according to Scripture. Confident dependence. And Jesus is saying, I have come to bring something completely new, completely other. That's the hallmark of God's people. That's what sets them apart. Not that they come to a certain place and do certain activities, but because their fundamental inclination to God is confident dependence. A beautiful middle ground between the two extremes of religion and secular humanism. Now, why can you do that? Why can Jesus offer that? Well, ultimately, he can offer it because because of the gospel. And I think one of the challenges for us as God's church over and over again is to understand ourselves and our action in light of who God is and what he's done for us. That's the question. Not in light of our own needs, but in light of who God is. And so Jesus says, actually, at the end of the passage... I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord. That word, that idea, that identity of Jesus has been built up repeatedly over the over these first chapters of Mark one to three. Particularly over and over, there's little moments where Jesus declared as Lord in subtle ways. He can heal people. He can bring people back from the dead. He can feed people. This, these little hints are going to keep being replayed in Mark's gospel. That Jesus is Lord, but of course, the exclamation point is at the end of the gospel when the tomb is empty where the previously dead person is alive again in the resurrection. And at that point, all these little hints, all these little nuances, all these little moments which are saying to us that Jesus truly is Lord are affirmed. It really is true. And if Jesus is Lord, then you can be dependent on him. You can be dependent on him. You should be dependent on him, in fact. He's not just, he's not just a great teacher. He's not just one who teaches with authority. He is the authority himself. But that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not that Jesus is powerful. The gospel is not that Jesus is king. The gospel is that Jesus is the king who went to the cross for you. He's the Lord who loses it for you so that he can open the door for you. You know, Jesus, Jesus at the end of the gospel, he, He breathes his last, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark 15, and then the next verse, what happens? The temple curtain tears in two. Mark includes it, Matthew includes it. Why? Because he's saying at that moment, the way has been opened right to the core, right to the centre of God's house. And at that moment, that is the invitation you see, to say, come into my house. I have opened the doors. I have thrown open the windows. You are all welcome. And everything Jesus has promised about preparing rooms for you and feasts, that is all true right now. Because Jesus Christ has paid everything that's necessary. He has taken down the need for any kind of barrier, any kind of wall, any kind of justification. Because He has thrown open the doors for you so that you can walk in confidently and feast at His table. That is the gospel. Not just that he is the Lord, but he's the Lord who's willing to lose it all for you. I want you to imagine two people going on a skydiving trip. The first one, he's young and he's brash and uh, he thinks, I'm just, I can work this out. How hard is this? Gravity does most of the work. He turns up, he straps on the the parachute backpack, He gets in the plane very confidently. plane takes off, it gets to the right altitude. Suddenly he starts to think twice, what have I done? But before he knows it, he's hooked on, the light goes, he jumps out of the plane, or actually he's pushed, because the next guy's waiting to get out. And there he is, he's free falling, gravity's doing all the work for him, right? He realises, I don't know what I'm doing. That's religion, independence, self-confidence which ultimately leaves you anxious and plummeting to your death. The second person is someone who turns up for the same experience, slightly uncertain, but listens carefully to the instructions, gets on the plane, the instructor says, now what's going to happen is I'm going to strap you onto me, I'm going to have the parachute on my back, Just enjoy the ride. And so I get to the door. Before they know it, the instructors jumped out. They start to feel the thrill, the rush of the air. And then a bit of a jerk as the instructors pull the cord at the right time. Parachutes unfurled. And then just silence. As they experience the peace of seeing the great vista. The beauty of it. Knowing that there was someone who's done this before. And knows exactly how things go. And because they're strapped to him, they're safe. That's the gospel, you see. Where you strap yourself into Jesus Christ. You say goodbye to the anxiety of religion. And you embrace the confidence of knowing that Jesus Christ has done it all for you. He has torn the curtain in two. And he's opened a way so he can feast at his great table. Let me pray. Kind Heavenly Father, we don't deserve your kindness and your mercy. We don't deserve for Jesus to do all the work for us at great cost to Himself. We don't deserve to come to your table. We don't deserve to enjoy your feasts. But your extraordinary news to us is that is exactly what we get because of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd fill our hearts with this joy and this truth and it would set us free to serve you this week. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.